You're listening to the Garden Organic podcast. As we were preparing this episode, Queen Elizabeth died, and we wanted to reflect on that for a moment. Watching the funeral, it seemed as though the spray of flowers on the coffin had been carefully picked from the garden rather than ordered in from the florist. There was rosemary for remembrance, together with oak leaves, roses, dahlias and scabious. Perhaps the most poignant of all was the myrtle, cut from a plant that had itself been grown from a sprig of myrtle in the Queen's wedding bouquet. The commentators told us that King Charles, a keen organic gardener, had been closely involved in choosing the flowers from his organic garden at Highgrove. What a beautiful personal tribute to his mother, expressed through his lifelong appreciation of plants. Hello and welcome. I'm Fiona Taylor and together with my colleagues from Garden Organic, Chris Collins and Dr Anton Rosenfeld, we'll be talking about all sorts of things, including split tomatoes and drip irrigation. Later on, we'll open the post bag to answer your questions about the organic management of playing fields and the sowing of green manures. Chris will be talking to Stephanie Slater, founder and chief executive of School Food Matters. Stephanie came to live in the UK from Australia, and when she went to visit her children's new school, she was told that the bad smell was actually their lunch. From that moment, a new campaign was born to cook school food from fresh. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. This month, they've a very special offer indeed, a heated propagator for just £11.99, saving a whopping £28. Go to organiccatalogue.com forward slash POD7 for this fantastic discount and get ahead with your germination this winter. That's organiccatalogue.com forward slash POD7. And now I'm off to meet Chris in the potting shed. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well indeed. I'm just enjoying all this colour, just going into the autumn, but still enjoying the summer. What, what's what's the colour in your allotment? Well, it's still going. My sunflowers have just been amazing. I did like a mix of them along the side, uh, down the side of the allotment, and they are still going strong. Canners are still going strong. Um, and I was out walking this morning as anemones, rudbeckias, all these plants are still, I even saw a fuchsia in full, full flower this morning. So, you know, it's not over yet. It's, I know that the coolness has come in, it feels a bit fresher, but plants still responding, still looking beautiful. And some of them are so big, aren't they? Like I was walking this morning through the uh, the vegetable garden at uh, Wrighton and the verbena has been a joy this year and it's, it's so tall, but the cosmos is almost as tall. So you've got the white cosmos and the purple verbena. It just looks so fantastic. It really does. And it, it does lift the heart when the rain comes. It does indeed. I think it's quite an important reason to look at your planting plants because there's so much can go on. So they've been very, Emma's been very clever at writing because she knows that the back end of the year, the cosmos will be going, the cannons will still be going, and enemies are still going. So plan your months when you plant. You know, if this is a good time to, year to do it. So think about what you're planting and how you get the most out of the season because it really pays off now. I tell you one thing she's done, which which really struck me this morning. She's taken all the leaves off the cardoon and she's left the cardoon flowers, which three metres tall. So you've yeah. got this beautiful bunch of, of dried cardoon flowers, which, of course, the, the, the birds will love. But just coming through underneath is is the new shoots of, of the cardoon. So this extraordinary plant just looks incredible. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's completely bridging the seasons. So you've got this very much, it's like architectural, especially again when the winter comes, if she leaves that in. 
looks very architectural against the grey skies. I really love that. But it's already making plans for the next round, isn't it? Uh, you've just got to love the resilience of plants, haven't you? And I think that uh, people kind of make a mistake, those, especially those that sort of just dabble on the edge of going, oh, it's October, I'll worry about it again next spring. No, every season counts. And actually cutting back leaves is a very, very useful way of extending the season, isn't it? We've got a lot of squashes coming through uh, looking absolutely fantastic, but uh, but starting to take some of the leaves off. Can you talk us through why that's important? Well, I do it on the allotment as well. I know um, I know Emma at Wright and she grows them on the ladder, doesn't she? So you get them running up the ladder, which is quite clever because then they hang. But the reason I would remove leaves, I like to, to try and get the sun in to, to, to ripen the fruit up. So actually October, September, October even, can be quite sunny. You can get some quite sunny days. So you want that fruit to ripen. So just cut the leaves out of the way so the sun can get in and make sure they're nice and edible. I think the other reason as well is that if you don't do it, they will run away. My squashes will definitely start to invade the next allotment if I let them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they are, that's right, they're, they're, they're invaders, aren't they? they but... they're, they're, well, in, in any other world, you'd think they were thugs. I've seen them in Thailand, you know, where they grow them on arches, like polytunnels without the skin, and you can walk through them while they're hanging. It's very clever how they can do it. So it's about con- making sure you can control them. I like to put one on my compost heap. I plant it into the top of the compost heap, and it grows out from there. And they're also brilliant plants for areas you're not using. So if you've taken over an allotment and you're and, and it's a very weedy allotment, and you've put some compost down, some cardboard plant a, a squash into it or a pumpkin because it will fill that area out, and the land is then being used. I think that's a brilliant idea. I really do. Um, and, I, of course, it keeps the weeds down as well, doesn't it? The exactly. It's, it blocks the light out, suffocates those weeds. Have you got any tips for growing squashes in general, though? I mean, for example, how do you make sure that uh, you, you, you harvest them at the right time? You know, because they keep for ages, don't they? They're very productive, especially towards the end of the season. What a lot of the small pumpkins I've got, they'll they'll sit green if they don't get enough sun. And also, when you try to twist them and take them off, if you get resistance off the receptacle, which is the little bit of stalk between the plant and the fruit itself, then it's quite not ready. It will pop when it's ready. The other big thing as well is don't grow too many. Pick stuff out when it's small and make sure you're reducing the amount so those ripen properly. I definitely believe what really helps is a good mulch as well, sort of May, June, because it will stop the powdery mildew getting in. It will keep a bit of humidity around them. That's a really, really good idea. And, of course, a little bit of a foliar feed makes them more resilient plants. And actually, you don't have to have many to then get loads of seeds, do you? Because they really, really have They pack them. Yeah, they yeah. pack them. Um, some of the skins are interesting. There's there's one outside that's it's blue and warty. You yeah. can't miss it. It's covered in warts. <laughs> yeah. it, it, is, it really is kind yeah. of Halloween-y. This, like, <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. It's quite <laughs> apt for this time of year, isn't it? It really it? is. Yeah. Absolutely. How, how have your squashes tasted this year, Chris? Oh, they're they're just delicious. They have the small pumpkins as well. I mean, I think they're such an underrated vegetable because they're great for stews. I roast them for roast dinners as well. I mean, I might even have a little go at pumpkin pie because that's delicious as well, but I've never tried to to make it yet. But I think they're a very underrated, delicious tasting vegetable, especially pumpkins because we all see them as something you just carve a face into and then throw away after the end of the month, really. There's a lot more to them than an annual celebration. In fact, in Japan and America, they're big for stews and soups so i encourage people to give them a go because they won't turn back but now the temperature's dropping it's good to turn our attention to what we can carry on growing so what could we grow inside uh, to keep on cropping some fresh food over the winter 
Well, my mini allotment, which is one of my pride and joys, because I have it literally, I, I have it on the windowsill. But what I mean by that is I'll take four or five old mushroom pallets, the sort of pallets you'll get when you buy other vegetables, and I'll take five of them. I'll take an old barbecue tray you can pick up quite easily, and I'll grow microgreens, I'll grow rocket pea shoots. And you can what you could do is you can have another five little pallets on the go. So when you crop one lot, you can then replace them and you rotate them. So you can have that fresh veg. At the moment, everything's getting so expensive. Not only is it fresh and organic, but you're going to save a few bob as well. I have to say, I do carry on with carrot tops through the winter. Nothing <laughs> better than a carrot top, isn't it? So, they're fantastic in sandwiches. Yeah. I absolutely love them. And they're so green, you know, it makes you feel like you're, you're in the springtime. But but herbs, of course, you know, there's some really good ones that go on through the winter anyway, you know, the, the woodier ones. But I tend to, to bring a pot of mint in. It slows right down, but it will still put a little bit of leaf on uh, and, and keep going. You, you can't have it too much, but it can be a real treat. It's nothing like homegrown mint. Yeah, no, on your potatoes or maybe the odd mojito if it's Friday night. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, it's difficult to buy herbs in the winter. They're expensive. Um, they're not organic. You know, we've talked about supermarket herbs before. You know, it's kind of a bit of a bugbear of ours, isn't it? You know, yeah. They're grown under lights. Uh, the plants are are weak. They're oversown in the pots. So it's worth bringing something of your anything that you've got outside that's been growing outside. It's really worth trying to bring bring it in for a little bit longer. Try and extend the season. Can you do late sowings as well, Fiona? Would you sow basil or coriander this late, or is it? I'm not sure. I would actually. Um, I but I would for microgreens. That's the brilliant thing is you can mm. keep going with with basil right through the winter for, for tiny, tiny little plants. Yeah. But actually, yeah. I think it gets a bit depressing otherwise. It's, it's waiting for spring, isn't it? That's what it's doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can't blame it, really. <laughs> <laughs> do you do bean sprouts, Chris? I do, yes. They're very easy. You can literally do those on cotton wool in an old mushroom pallet if you get the seeds. They're very, very easy to do. Um, and pea shoots are amazing. We've talked about these a lot as well. I mean, for an 80 pence for a box of dried peas, not only will they keep producing because you won't use them all in one go, but they grow and then you crop them and they'll grow again three or four times. And pea shoots in a fresh salad or a sandwich, absolutely wonderful. And there's no reason to stop doing that because the growing season is ending because you're growing them and they'll hit seedling size and then you're cropping them. So I very much encourage it. What's the quickest of those, you know, the mustards and the cresses? How, yeah. What's the very quickest one? The cresses are amazing, them? but I, I do go Chris's crazy cress heads. In fact, the first day I was on Blue Peter, we did Chris and Connie's crazy cress heads, and you just do a little pot and draw a face on it, and the cress is up in like three days, and it's in your egg sandwich. So it's a really good way to engage young children. We'll be looking forward to talking about that a little later. Um, if we were going outside now, what do we need to think about in terms of planning ahead for spring? I think it's all about bulbs, really. Yeah, we were looking forward to this last month. I was already revving up, wasn't I? Because I am just, I love bulbs. I just love them. They're the most unfussy plants. They just do what they just say on the tin. They lift you out of the winter and into the spring. They're like a bridge between the two places. So I am all by the bulbs at the moment. I'll be doing them on the balcony. I'll be doing them on the allotment. And I'll be doing them at home with the kids who live in the same block of flats I live in because there's an area out the front that I've took over. So I just think bulbs are brilliant. And also, you've got to remember, they can pretty well go from January right the way through to early June, really. So you get this big flow of them. So get the garden, organic gardening catalogue or look at other organic bulbs because otherwise they're quite, they're quite a lot of chemicals involved. Have a look. Choose. Have a pick. They're not massively expensive. 
It's like a bit, bit like being in a sweet shop. I'm a big fan of Masia. I know they're a late one because they don't mm. come up till sort of May time, do they? But oh, golly, they're beautiful. And actually, they've got some in the organic gardening catalogue because I've just had a quick sneaky look. Um, yeah. And of course, the tete a tete, the little tiny. A little day. Uh, they're, they're, yeah. Things I love about bulbs, my balcony looks incredible in the spring because they don't need a lot of space and you can pack them in. Don't be afraid to really pack them in. They're very easy to grow. This is the time now to buy them, to plant them, and then you can forget about them all winter. They won't trouble you at all, and they'll arrive in the spring and give you so much pleasure. They're a win-win on all all accounts. If you're putting them in pots, I always worry a little bit about them rotting. Yes. Um, Give me a bit of tips on how we could avoid that. Well, there's two things I do. Clean drainage, obviously, is a big one. So my baskets I've never had problems with. I use, obviously, a a peat-free compost. But the big pots, where it's more likely to happen, I lift them, I put them on bricks. So there's two bricks under the pots and that allows them to drain properly. Also allows them if you get a cold night to recover and just make sure you use a decent free draining peat free compost. If you're really worried about it, mix in 20% with horticultural gravel or silver sand, horticultural sand, just to make sure it drains properly. Outside of that, they should be fine. And what's the latest you can be planting them? Well, you've still got time, a couple of months, I'd say. So ideally October, because you want them to stick down the roots. If you cut a tulip in half, you can see already the leaves and the flower that come in the spring. But it's all about the roots. Get them in now. They put down a lot of roots. They'll explode in the spring. And I've actually, to let you know as a professional gardener, a bit cheeky, left them right the way up to December in the past and still had a go with them still. But get organised is my message. Don't leave them too late. Uh, it's a very miraculous thing, isn't it? You get this kind of dry, papery thing yeah, that looks totally dead. It looks totally dead <laughs> yeah, it, outside. And then you yeah. and then and then this amazing thing happens. I, I tell you the other thing that fascinates me is is bare root planting. Mm. Same sort of thing. You've it got is. this sort of dry thing, <laughs> yeah, and yet it yeah, will come twig. back. Well, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, bare root. As a younger gardener on the parks and botanic gardens, everything was bare root. We didn't buy anything pot. It tends to be localised because, obviously, you're not going to transplant it over great distances. It, it's not forced. It's also, this is the perfect time to do it while the soil's still warm and they'll get their roots down and grow. Cheap, it's cheap, local, organic. There's a lot to be said for it, okay? Especially if you want to be planting trees. There's a big push to be planting trees at the moment. You get those young whips, you plant them up now, bare root. You've got more chance of that plant surviving for the first, second season, then it will grow on to be a big tree. Maybe this is the year I will finally plant that green gauge tree. Yes, exactly. This is the time to do it. It's also a great time to move any kind of plant as we go into dormancy. So if there's a shrub outside your kitchen window and it's a metre by metre, maybe bigger, and you're going, that's right in my way, you can move this this time of year. Just make sure you dig a trench around the edge of the the crown, a trench about 30 centimetres down, 30 cent, 20 centimetres wide, and you'll start to see the root ball, then gently rock it. And when it starts to really get loose, get a bit of hessian underneath it, get one of you either side, lift it, and replant it. It's the perfect time of year to do it. So other things that we could be doing, of course, is dividing our plants. Yes, it is. Well, division is just the easiest and most productive way to get more plants. It really is. Herbaceous plants are just so easy to do. All those nepeters, all those sort of plants that die back naturally this time of year. Well, a lot of them, after three or four years, they will get a bit root bounds. They'll get a bit, they'll start to die out in the centre, lift and divide them into five or six plants, replant one, Pot the others up. That's other plants you can give away. Could be a present. Or you want to fill up in other parts of the garden. I'm involved in the local park near me, and they've got a big, long, herbaceous border. Lots of plants that have been there a while, and I'm looking at it thinking, 
wow, that's a lot of stock. I can colour up the rest of the park if we lift and divide these. Very, very easy way to get more plants. And can you divide your house plants? You can. You can indeed, Fiona. I've got uh, things like spathi filum, anything with a crown that starts. I'll tell you what, I've just divided. I've just divided my banana. Inside? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just a brilliant <laughs> little plant. It's given me so much pleasure. It can't be a little plant. It's, well, it's, well, it's about, got to about three and a half foot. So up to my waist, basically. And what happens is that then starts to expire and then it shoots off new rosettes. It's brilliant for vegetative reproduction. So then I'll lift it and break those away and replant them and I'll have more than one plant then maybe give one away as a present. Anything with multiple crown, you can divide up. And this is a great time of year to do it because it will sit as foliage. Don't overwater it. It'll sit as roots through the winter and get a good kick off in the spring. Oh gosh, that's a great idea. Of course, there's there's also that easy peasy way of, of propagating houseplants by just, you know, breaking things off and popping them in water. Can you talk us through that? So very, very easy to grow a lot of houseplants in water. And the reason is, is a lot of them are tropical. So they're growing in conditions that are very damp and wet and they'll produce aerial roots in their natural environment anyway as a result of moisture. So things like coleus, begonias, papyrus, you can literally take bits of sections off them, dunk them in a milk bottle and they'll root after seven to ten days. You can then pot them up, either keep them or maybe give them away as presents. I often divide plants and think, I can't throw anything away. I'm terrible at throwing plants away. So I'll pop them in water, root them, and try and carry them on in their lives. It's it's wonderful, isn't it, to think that that we can just propagate and make more make more of these gorgeous plants. Well, it's my favourite thing to do. It just is. Just to produce plants, because it's stock. I've said before the analogy, and I describe it as it's almost like painting, but you have a, your canvas is the garden and your plants are the paints. And the more you divide and the more you've got, the more you can put that paint on the canvas. And that's a really nice way to look at it, I think. Let's talk about dahlias for a minute, because mine have been lovely. It's the first year I feel I've really sort of got there with dahlias and I, I, I want to keep it going. So what would you be doing now? Well, there's kind of two choices, really. I mean, you could just leave them in the ground, to be honest with you, as long as the soil drains OK. You could just leave them there and let them do. I think over time, if you do that, they become weaker. I, I tend to do that on the allotment because I'm short of time. But if you really got a special one, in the old days when I worked at the old boy gardens, the botanics and the parks, they would lift them and they would take the eyes off. So you've got these long tubers. They'd look at the growth points that are underground very carefully with a knife, carve them off in a little bit of the tuber, put them in a very sandy, free-draining soil in seed trays, keep them somewhere quite cool. In, in the greenhouse, and then they would shoot next year. And there's a big advantage to that. One, it keeps them healthy, but two, it means they're not destroyed by the slugs early in the season. Because once they start to grow, you can pop them up, keep them in pots, get a bit of foliage on them, maybe 10 inches worth or something like that, 25 centimetres. And then when you plant them out late in May, they're a bit too chewy for the slugs. They're a bit too much lignin in the foliage and in the stems, and they tend not to touch them. So you've got control on the pest, basically, in an organic method, if you're lifting, dividing, and overwintering them in a... I mean, you can even do it in a garage if you wanted to. You don't necessarily need a greenhouse. That is good advice. I think one of the secrets, though, is making sure you label them. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I did mean to ask you, though, about your chilies this year. Apparently, you've had loads. <laughs> I have. It's been a year. It's been a year of the chilli because I've got masses of them. I've got a plant on my balcony that's pretty much up to my neck in height in a pot. It's huge. I've got them on the on the allotment as well. Um, what I'm going to try and do is dry them. That's going to be experimental. I've not really done it on this sort of scale before. So we'll see what they taste like. Have you ever made chilli oil? I've been given a top tip about chilli oils. The the key is you've got to boil the chilli up just for a couple of minutes. Make sure it's actually been gone through boiling water because that gets rid of any kind of risk of any anything that could then infect the the oil. 
Um, and then you just literally just suspend it in a jar of oil. And that's, ah, that's it, right. done. And then how would you use that? You'd use that, literally spoon it into food? Yeah, drizzle it. I drizzle it over things, tend to, I tend to if idea. I want to sort of spice things up. I'm a bit of a devil for um, chilli with peanut butter on toast. <laughs> That's an unusual mix. Well, there's two things I've got to try now. Chilli oil and chilli with peanut butter. So it's got to be done now, isn't it? It's got to be done. <laughs> Excellent. We'll compare notes. And, of course, it is the right time of year to be seed saving as much as we can. Have you been doing any of that? I have. I have quite a few heritage tomato types on the allotment and they'll all get saved. Make sure I get the seeds dried out, put them on the bit of tissue and then I'll put them in Tupperware and they can sit there till next year. My runner beans and my French beans will all get saved as well because they're given to me by our fellow allotment holders and I'd like to keep them going. So there's a great time to do it. It's, you know, it saves you money. It's guaranteed organic. So what you can't lose is a win-win. And it's great for the plants to get the opportunity to actually kind of go through the whole cycle, isn't it? I think it's great for the gardener too, because there's nothing greater than sowing, growing, and then sowing again. You know, that whole circle of life is um, it's why we do it, I think. It's why we do it. Yes, it is why we do it. But one of the things that really motivates you, Chris, is working with children, isn't it? And I know for this month, you went and interviewed Stephanie Slater, um, who's the founder and chief exec of an organisation called School Food Matters. My goodness, school food <laughs> does really matter, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. It's, a, I mean, it's, it's an, an issue, name. <laughs> it is an appropriate name and yeah. it's an issue close to your your heart. So tell us a little bit about your passion for working alongside kids. Well, it's, it's this kind of began really, I suppose it began out of the Blue Peter stuff because we were doing stuff on screen and we were growing and then I gradually got known through that and I came across people like Stephanie are incredibly passionate about what they do. I think the important thing to say here is we are not trying to tell everyone what they should do, what they should feed their kids. We're not dictating anything. This isn't, you know, something that we think should be enforced. But gardening and cooking and eating healthy food are just great things to do. They're positive things to do. And and the spin-off from that is amazing, isn't it? Because you've got well-being, you've got better diet, you've got less people ending up in hospital later in life, so there's an economic argument for it. But putting aside all the politics, it's just such a pure, happy thing to do. And I think my experiences with doing it, and every school you go into, you get this massive positive response. But they might become gardeners as well. Well, I think without further ado, I'm dying to hear the rest of your interview with Stephanie. So I think we'll move across and, and hear how that goes now. So Chris is going to talk to Stephanie Slater. She is the founder and chief exec of School Food Matters. Well, welcome, Stephanie, an old friend of mine and work colleague in some respects. Obviously worked for you bits and bobs over the years. So just tell me, School Food Matters, what is it and how did it start? So, well, Chris, you were there right at the start. <laughs> I was, You yeah. were there at the launch, so you've, you've seen the story develop. It happened because I was that pushy parent that was really unhappy with the dinner being served at children's school. I mean, it got weird, whimsical story of my children going to a Montessori nursery at Bondi Beach. Yeah. Where they grew their own vegetables. Because you were in Australia before yeah. this, weren't you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they grew their own vegetables in a school playground and then they'd harvest them and prepare them for lunch where they'd share around an outdoor table. Yeah. So I came back to London in 2005 and chucked my kids in the local primary school and the first words I heard from the office manager, this is an outstanding primary school in London, the first words were, sorry about the smell, that's lunch. <laughs> and there was just, it was... It was a fait accompli. There was nothing that anybody could do about it. And I thought, well, this does not make sense to me. 
I had 20 years in film production yeah. and we were all about fixing stuff. Yeah. And I thought it was going to be really easy. And the best thing about me going into this was I had absolutely no knowledge of public sector procurement. Yeah. Had I known, probably wouldn't have done it <laughs> because it was a very, very long journey. Yeah. But hey, you know, it was a job worth doing. It was a job that needed doing. Mm. So that was the school dinner side of it. But the other thing that really chimed with me was this thirst for children to have access to outdoor learning. Yeah. So to me, not using the school yeah. as a hub of food growing was kind of weird. It was an untapped resource. And then I heard a head teacher say that kids at his school couldn't identify an onion. Yeah. So it just seemed to me there was a job. I to remember that conversation about where the potatoes growing on trees and all that sort of stuff we were talking about in the beginning. And that, that whole concept of, of kind of, you know, a school is a community area, uh, an area we're all involved in. So it's prime for talking about fresh food, about gardening, welfare, physical exercise, yeah. all those things. Yeah. But you've come a long way since then. Because <laughs> I'm sitting in your offices now. There's what, how many of you working here now? Yeah, I think about 22, 23. 22. And yeah. that all started with you, didn't it? it you did. were the original. Yeah, it was me for four years because I didn't really know I was setting up a charity. Yeah. Um, I didn't know, really know what I was doing. But, you know, I got a bit, got sunk my teeth in a bit and I got really wanted to get this job done. Yeah. And it just created this fantastic opportunity to do more and talk to more people and go into partnership with lovely organisations like yeah. Garden Organic. And I, it was really cool moving into this space, having done all this work in film production. And just the quality of people I was working with, they were so committed to what they were doing yeah. and making a little difference or a big difference. And it just sort of makes getting up in the morning a little bit... Better. I, I've always been, to be honest with you, and we've done, we'll go on to the stuff we've done together a bit later, the Borough Market thing mm. is one that stands out to me. But you've always managed to surround yourself with people who are very like, passionate like yourself. Mm. Is that, do you think that's a result of the fact your passion has taken you on this journey? Yeah. And you've I kind just, of carried people along with you, haven't you? Yeah, I've, one of the head teachers, I, when my kids went to secondary school, she always used to talk about solutions-based thinking. Yeah. And it was very much my mantra. It was like, ooh, this is tricky. Yeah. Let's work out how yeah, to sort yeah. it out. And this, you know, I think if you have that sort of optimism and, you know, drive... Yeah. People get, get off on that, you know. It's quite cool, isn't it, to be around people with that sort of energy that want to fix stuff and can see how much better life can be if you just sort of, you know, dig your teeth in and have a go. So you've got kind of passion and also the ability to delegate yeah. drive stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and as I said before, I knew nothing about this world. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely nothing. I could organise stuff and I could run a budget because that's what I used to do. Yeah. But I knew nothing about this. You know, education, procurement, yeah. local authority, funds, got no flaming idea at all. But obviously all this sort of stuff needs... So it's interesting you mentioned procurement because obviously you pitch for work. Yeah. It needs funding, doesn't yeah. it? That, I suppose in a way that's the hardest part. I think the thing we come up against the most, no matter how good our intentions and our, I know what we want to yeah. achieve, getting it to actually get out on the ground and yeah. in schools is, is. Is there a technique you have yeah. to that? Well, I just think you know I'm quite. I'm possibly the luckiest chief exec out because <laughs> look at what I do. I go to people say, "Is it a good idea to serve children fabulous, tasty, nutritious food?" Yes or no? Is it a good idea that we expose children to the joys of outdoor learning and learn how to grow their own food and become skilled individuals, skilled adults? Is that a good idea? There aren't many people that are going to say, no, that's a really rubbish idea, <laughs> <Yeah>. go away. <laughs> so, so in a way, you have to kind of pull their chain a little bit, don't absolutely, you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to be that schmuck that says, no, that's really awful, we shouldn't feed children well. Yeah. 
the, the interesting piece about what we call the Richmond campaign was that I went in and said, we can do better, we can cook from fresh, when everyone said, no, we can't do that because we've never done it, you know, that sort of status quo thing. And then we had people saying, well, you can try, but it'd be really expensive. And, it, you know, I was a bit <laughs> nervous about that because yeah, yeah. I was taking all these people on a journey and saying, yes, we can, but, you know, I was going to back to bankrupt the council and I was a little <laughs> bit worried about that, losing a bit of sleep. But, you know, it's that whole thing. If you take a good idea and people buy into it mm. and then people go into it with confidence, like the cage got run the contract, they just knew that if they serve really good food, they can afford to do it much better because they get the economies of scale. Yes. So if you serve children crap food, and yeah. it'll go in the bin. Yeah. And yeah. ergo, the yeah. financial viability... So it's quality of product, isn't it? At the end of the Absolutely. day, that's all you're talking about. Absolutely. So if, if you've got something people want, they'll then come. So Absolutely. it becomes a numbers game at that so, point. So here we go. It went from 26% take-up across the borough, which gave me the information I need to run a campaign. And then within the first half term, the numbers had doubled. Yeah. And the contract, pre the campaign, there, it was £2.45 a meal for a frozen meal from a factory in Wales. Yeah. Post the campaign, when we awarded the new contract, the meal price came down by 30p. So it actually decreased. It's a bit like the myth of takeaway food, isn't it? Or So basically, you'll, yeah. you think you're getting something quick and yeah. easy, yeah. but it's actually it's more expensive. expensive. Yeah, yeah processed food is expensive. So I have to ask also, I mean, people might say, oh, well, Richmond's probably, you know, it's quite a wealthy area, but you're in Southwark, you're in Tower Hamlets, areas with massive poverty. Mm. Do you find a difference between those two, two scenarios? Are there yeah. different challenges involved? Isn't London interesting, though? In every London borough, whether it's London Borough of Richmond or Hackney, there are going to be pockets of wealth and pockets of deprivation. So it's not like poverty doesn't exist in Richmond, no. is what you're saying? I mean, some yeah, of the yeah. schools I was working with in Richmond had 52% free school meal in eligibility. Yeah. Some of them had five. Yeah. It just depends. And it's the same wherever you are It's in a London. myth that, well, this area is wealthy and this one's not, absolutely, is what you're saying. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so the children there are still suffering from the same problems. They're not getting, they're not getting the garden. They're not getting the welfare, physical exercise. They're not eating well. But those problems exist. Yeah. It's regardless of boundaries. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are hotspots throughout England and the UK. Mm. There are areas that have been forgotten. I mean, they're actually called forgotten areas, forgotten cities. And we're always keen to work where we can have the greatest impact, where where the need is. So the as you mentioned, Lambeth and Southwark, we're currently working with impact on urban health through Guy's and St Thomas's. Yeah, because there are two London boroughs that they in their community with really high rates of child obesity and low income yeah. and they have seen the correlation so they're, they're related basically so yeah. we've stopped talking about obesity now and we've just started talking about health inequality yeah it's poor people who yes. have a poor diet yeah 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 there's yeah. no escaping that yeah, so certainly. that's where we're focusing a lot of energy yeah, at the moment yeah and i think i'll, I'll to, to, you know obviously pull it around to gardening what, what i've really enjoyed about the stuff i've done with you which i also think is really important is you relate it the whole seed to plate thing quite a lot of people who champion eating good food but they tend to miss the gardening side out yeah. you're yeah. not cooking anything decent without producing the produce yeah. so the gardening work is incredibly essential isn't it and you, you've always really embraced that, yeah. Yeah. Is that how, how did that come about is that gardening as a child or? yeah yeah I mean our strap line is farm gate to school place yes yes and that was partly because I thought it was going to be like dead easy to get farmers to grow the food for the local primary school a bit more complicated <laughs> yeah. but you know you've got to sit, think big yeah but it still stands you know we want to make that connection and even if it's anecdotal you can bring the whole issue alive around disconnect around food so the boy who was growing cucumbers and the head teacher comes out and he's time to harvest the cucumber and the boy bursts into tears and he says what's wrong he said it's not ready 
and the head teacher says, look, measure it, it's ready to harvest now. Yeah. And the boy bursts his teeth and said, but the plastic hasn't grown on it yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, That yeah. is a true story. I'll bet, I'll bet. From yeah. one of our myriad of gardening yeah. opportunities we've had. Yeah. So, you know, as long as kids think that cucumbers grow with plastic around them, I'll we just need, keep We need going. to fight this fight, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So lots of the programmes we do demonstrate to children that food doesn't come from a supermarket, it actually comes from the soil. And we take them out to see food growing at scale. We do this two ways. We do it by giving them a seed, which you have done loads of sessions for us. And, you know, the awe and wonder of growing a bean, which lots of schools do in reception. But we take that a little bit further. So the older kids is quite important, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The other, the other focus that we've got, which I think we're quite unique as far as food education charities, is we have a lot of enterprise through our programmes. Yeah. And if you say to young people you can make a buck out of this, suddenly they think, hang on, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. Is, there's an opportunity here. And that was partly because we wanted to convert the naysayers. There's a political angle to that as well, isn't it? Because you might get that, well, why waste your time when these other important things so by bringing that into play bringing enterprise into yeah. it you kind of annul that don't you you yeah. kind of squash that out that's yeah. quite fundamental if you're going for funding etc absolutely yeah, absolutely yeah. it's it's all about um you know innovation and finding something that will engage schools and not be outside the curriculum yeah we don't want things to be a bolt-on we want to enrich it has, the to, it has to it has to my experience and I've, you know how many schools i've been into over the years I have to go in and, and be part of what's going on. I can't be a separate because otherwise I'm putting pressure on people that have already got a lot of pressure yeah. on them anyway. Yeah. And that's a very delicate game, isn't yeah. it? If I go in and say, let's build a garden, yeah. the teacher has to think, well, how do I use it in the curriculum, yeah. in my already, the, the yeah. plate I've already got in front yeah. of me? There yeah. is, as a charity, over the 15 years we've been doing this, we are never over prescriptive with our programmes. Mm. We never go and do to a school. It's pointless. Yeah. Because then you'll walk away and the whole thing And it'll just apart. fall apart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, again, we're quite unusual. We, we run a grants program every year. We give a, a, um, through Whole Kids Foundation in the US, we give away around 70k a year to yeah. schools to set up or develop their school gardens. And we are very loose in what they spend it on. So if they need a teacher, yeah. a gardener, if they need kit, if they need training, whatever they need to make it happen. Yeah. Because we want it to survive after the key players that you talk about. Yeah. You know, the, the one champion in the school that makes it happen. It can't just sit on their shoulders. No. So we, we, we want to leave something behind every single time. So with that, with that, you have to work with what you've got in a school. You're yeah. quite right. So you're trying to empower them with what's already existing, Absolutely. basically. Yeah, and just yeah. give them a little leg up. Well, you've got, let's go on to your garden, because I know you've got a few with you at the moment. So you've got, how many guys you got with you? Three. So you've got three, and they're actively out yeah. in schools yeah. all the time. Yeah. So they're... Um, so we they need got, more, Chris. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll come give you a hand again. You know that. I always enjoy it. And, and it's good if that expands, because I think that... I think the danger for me always is it's like it's become a tick box. Oh yeah, we've got you know we've got it in schools now. Let next, and I just don't think the battle is won by any no. by any degree. I'm sure you'll be mm. you'll agree with that 100. Yeah. percent But what kind of projects are they doing? What are they doing on the ground at the moment? So we have got we tend to have a gardening element in all of our programs. Yeah. So for example, we do um, a lovely honeybee program. Brilliant. So we're teaching children about the importance of pollinators in food production. You know, without pollinators, we don't have food. Again, that's a lesson they need to learn. That's a connection they need to make. So we do it two ways. We have a beekeeper go yeah. into a school with an observation hive so that they can, you know, the awe and wonder of, of honeybees. And we're also now taking them to an apron. 
and the kids get the bee suits on. That's brilliant. And, you know, it's the most charm. I'll show you some pics, but the most charming tiny people in, in beautiful bee suits. And they can pick up frames. They can see the honey. It's just extraordinary. But the one thing we don't do is encourage schools to set up their own colonies. Yeah. Unless they are really They know what they're doing, yeah. If they've got beekeepers in the school or on their staff, if they've got a local association next to them, that's a different story. But in order to get any cash from us for beehives... There has to be some form of expertise. Absolutely. Otherwise, because because we work very closely with London Beekeepers Association. They are fantastic. But what we're supporting them to do is plant forage. Yeah. Because London has lots of honeybees, but it doesn't have enough food. So basically, so, you've got a, a, a more food, more bees than food at the moment, is correct. what you're saying. Yeah. So what, that's what one of the jobs our gardeners do. They go into the school, they plant bee-friendly plants with the children and take them on the whole lesson about how important it is. You know, you need food, bees need food too, mm. so this is what we're doing. We're so you're, 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 you're that closing that circle, aren't you? It's yeah. really important. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is we do lots of, as I say, enterprise programmes, and we want students, schools to come along with a bumper harvest, mm. and we know that's really challenging. That's part of the lesson. We've had lots of programmes where children have turned up with two carrots, <laughs> yeah. you know, because the foxes have dug up their pumpkins or you know whatever's happened. Yeah, yeah. So we do it two ways. We start with um, seed sowing, and then we'll get our gardeners to go in and do a, a check-in to see how they're going, so that we can support them if they're they've got a problem. And then they come to market, obviously. Yes, yeah, like like the borough. My, my involvement, our biggest right. problem we do is borough market. Yeah. Which is a yeah, it's basically them growing food and then selling food, the whole circle. Yes. And that is incredibly successful. And you know, I think you're right. That whole thing about the challenges they face, it's not an easy thing. It's quite a bit of a metaphor for life in a way, it is. isn't it? Of course it is. And it, but I think also you do it. We do a lot of this in Southwark. So a lot of those kids won't have a garden. Yeah. A lot of those kids won't have access to a garden. They're probably not thought about growing food. So I think that. To me, it's always had a massive impact just to, when you turn up there, well, you know, you explain more than me, but that whole market day when they turn up with the produce and we sell it yeah. at Borough Market and the absolute pleasure those children get out of yeah. it. Yeah, and pride. Yes. You know, we've seen many a child hang on to a courgette because it's a bit special and they don't want to give it away. You know, <laughs> yeah. They get very attached. <laughs> so there was a couple of things there. You're absolutely right. A lot of the families we work with don't have access to green space, but they're often from communities whose grandparents all grew veg. Yeah. Lots of stuff. So the knowledge know. is there, isn't yeah. it, in the background? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So we can learn a lot from them. The programme you're talking about, uh, Borough Market, is our Young Marketeers programme. It's been running for 10 years now, and we've just taken it out on the road to different cities around England. This year we're in Liverpool, uh, Newcastle, Stroud, and previously we've been in Dorset. So it's expanding now, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's too good to just keep in London, you know. And we, this is partly made possible by donations during COVID. Right. We, what we learned, I mean, oh gosh, we all learned a lot during COVID, didn't we? But one of the yeah. things that we learned is that schools really valued outdoor learning because it yes. was one of the few things they could do during lockdown. So key workers, kids were in schools, but they had no extracurricular opportunity mm. outdoor learning it's, in yeah, the garden. It's, it's interesting because they reckon that three million people suddenly started buying seeds during lockdown. So yeah. it's kind of... Couldn't get compost to take a No, you couldn't, that's true. <laughs> it's interesting how, how, how it became a, much more of a strength during that period in yeah. a way. And that's why you're saying mm. your your market, your market has expanded yeah. out of London. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's really exciting to take it to different parts of the country. And we're learning lots too, because obviously when we're working in Newcastle, 
the season's so much later. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, our market day um, is in July, and lots of them were, you know, it was, you know, when they start planting in April, some of the ground was still solid with frost. Yeah, you know, so it's, it's a different game up there. I've been living in Edinburgh for a while. Yeah, well, know. as at <laughs> Glasgow, we did the yeah, before, yeah, yeah. and that was a completely yeah, made up as we went along, you know, sort of like. Well, it's, I found it also interesting. This, um, I think the relationship we have with the teachers is really interesting because they seem to get a real lot out of it as well. They recognise gardening. Yeah. And, and obviously the result of a better diet and all the other things, the well-being, they really recognised that and mm. bought into it. And I, I think maybe that's a massive achievement on behalf of school field managers. Yeah, yeah. Well, they just it's, it just gives them an opportunity to teach in a different way and yeah. introduce children that don't have access to the, the wonders of the outdoor world. And, you know, what a great thing mm. for, for teachers to be able to do. What a great thing to be able to take children that don't thrive in the classroom to something they can be really good at. And the, the, the thing, going back to that enterprise element and being market storeholders for the day, every single year we get a teacher write and say, I couldn't get a word out of Sam in the class. <laughs> yeah, He's yeah. turned into a market <laughs> tradesman. He's a hawker. <laughs> yeah. you know, I've never seen him yeah. so eleva- you know, so gauged. It's, it, it kind of, intellect comes in different guises and we tend to forget that about yeah. our kids, don't we? Yeah. And the, I, I mean, we've met some real characters at Borough Market. I always remember little Harry in the Trilby. He was one yeah. of the, yeah, the, But that is right. You're empowering. Not everybody's going to get the three R's and A-level. and yeah. go on. You yeah. have to find these other skills yeah. and it's just another string to the bow of what you Absolutely. do, isn't it? What and, gardening and, does. And I also, I also sort of caution against saying, you know, it's a great thing for those that don't thrive in the classroom, which it is. Yeah. It's also great for people who are absolutely A-star and flying. Yeah, so you're right, actually. Science, because you know, they need to get their hands dirty. They're going to see something yeah. different. Yeah. I mean, I've been in many a school, you know, just flipping for a second to cooking because we obviously run cooking programs yeah. too. I mean, where it sings, it's where it's a kitchen garden program where they've grown and then they cook. So our food teacher, Sharon, yeah. does a lot of that work where she'll go to the school garden, harvest something and then cook with the children. I've been in many school when they've gone, oh, yeah, we do cooking with the kids that aren't up to doing foreign language. Yeah, yeah, you do get this kind of like, especially, you know, I do stuff in secondaries and it's kind of like those kids are palmed off. Yeah. You can't sit still in a classroom, you know, and they're just kind of pushed to the side. And we really need to kind of battle that, don't we? It's about, you know, I really liked the line in the National Food Strategy with Henry Dibbleby saying that we wanted food education to have the same focus as English and math. Yeah. We need to raise the profile. It's not not just a nice to have. It's no, it's not. It's not like let's do this on a Friday afternoon because yeah. we can all chill out. And it's, we, you yeah. know, we've got two things. We've got mass health inequality, and we've got a climate crisis. Yeah. So just those two things. A reason enough to be promoting this Absolutely. subject matter. And also, you know, if I garden, I garden with kids. I'm I'm teaching them science. I'm teaching them maths. I'm teaching them art. Yeah. All these things come into play, don't they? And yeah. you're right. It shouldn't be on the back burner. Yeah. And we need to kind of fight that. And look, you know, we're seeing the the evidence of climate here, yeah. aren't we? Mm. And we're seeing what that does, like. The first thing you said when you walked in is you can't do much gardening because it's yeah, because so of the, because it's so arid at the moment. Yeah, yeah. so you know that is a lesson in itself. We've got yeah. to learn about what does thrive in this climate. Well, no. the, the interesting thing of working with kids is they're the people that can change it. You know that. So I'm sure is that what motivates you. It certainly motivates me when I garden with kids. Yeah. I kind of think if there is going to be a swing away from from what feels like a bit of a cul-de-sac at the moment, yeah. maybe they're the answer yeah. to it. Well, they are. I mean, look at the youth movement around climate. It's so exciting. Yeah. And a lot of when we go into schools and talk about um, health inequality and healthy diet, we often engage schools through climate, yeah. particularly secondary schools. So if we're talking about less and better meat. Yeah. We're talking from a climate impact. If we're talking about just drinking water, we're talking about single-use plastics. So we, we change the conversation. Mm. I mean, we don't want them eating, drinking fizzy drinks and too many burgers. But that's what we're getting at. Yes. Through a different route. 
And climate is often a really good way and an essential way to engage young people. So people kind of get that. It's a real subject and then you can go on to, the, you know, what you're growing and what you're eating, yeah, etc. Yeah. and stuff. And... I mean, come the revolution, Chris. <laughs> yeah. There will be a subject called food education, yeah. like we have well, religious education, yes. like we have physical education, yeah. and it will go from reception all the way, way through to, to when you leave. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's ridiculous we're not in that situation yeah. now in many it's ways. such rich content. Yeah, I mean, it is. You know, and like you say, it ties in with all these other aspects of your life it's not a set aside subject it's how we live and yeah. breathe and that's what's yeah. important about it yeah, yeah. yeah. profound stuff Eli. it really is and I and I love it and I know I'll just ask a little bit about organics because I know you practice natural gardening yeah. as well her heritage seed library yeah. always give us the seeds for the yeah. borough market bless yeah. them Katrina yeah. and her group yeah. and that's quite important to you as well isn't it the natural sort of sourcing of food yeah absolutely and just having those conversations about the difference mm. And where, the other thing is when we take children out to a farm, we'll get, if we're lucky, if we can get our hands on a farmer, we'll get them to talk about different farming practices and the difference. And it's really fascinating stuff for them. You know, it's that whole stuff about nurturing the soil and what you put in influences what, you, what comes out. It's that really, whole cycle, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. So we, we like to promote organic gardening practices because that's what we believe in. Mm. So the, the first thing to do is to get children growing. Get things, that seed up out of the soil. And then they yeah. can think about how different ways of doing it. Yes, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think that I've always been of the opinion that if I get you to germinate seedling, I've got you as a gardener. That's yeah. kind of one of those, isn't it? And yeah. Everything follows on. And then you start looking at natural methods, which yeah. obviously been a bit like the fast food thing or, or less expensive um, bring you into the subject matter closer because yeah. it's not something you just take eat move on or grow yeah. move on it's yeah. kind of a bit more of a lifestyle Absolutely. so that's what that's what you're ultimate driving for so I mean I, I can't congratulate you enough from the Stephanie I met 15 years ago <laughs> starting off to what you've got going on now but I, so I have to ask there are a lot of challenges still some of them will be political we know yeah. that constantly rumbles on what do you think the future's going to be do you have further further um, ambitions I'm sure you do well, you know, I, I will keep talking about this sort of, you know, mythical food education um, uh, subject. Um, and I think you've just got to keep banging the drum, haven't yeah. you? Because I want every child in every school to have young marketeers. Yeah. You know, so what we do, we still, despite our growth, we still consider ourselves a small charity. Mm. We can't be in 28,000 schools. So what we are going to do is demonstrate by doing... And then the important part of our charity that we haven't really spoken about is the campaigning and advocacy. Yeah. So everything we learn when we're in a school planting a seed or in a school dining hall having school dinner, everything we learn, we take to government. Yes. Because so you're we, providing evidence then, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. And, and also I think that what you've been very good at is politicians like to be in the sun. They like to be in the light. So if you can provide examples... Of what you're achieving, then you start to get them on board. Don't what you? a brilliant photo op! Come yes, on, yes, it is. You know? well, we've had the mayor of Southwark, yeah. yeah. so they will come if they we will. we make an impression. They that, will, yeah. because yeah. I said, you know, go back to that thing. I'm the luckiest chief exec in the world. I, you know, I have an argument that isn't worth arguing about. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. is it a good idea? Of course it is. Yes, it's a bit hard, hard one to knock back. Yeah. It? Well, I have to say, I mean, if anyone's more interested in getting, you know, finding out more about school film matters, there's loads out on social media, isn't there? Yeah. There's Instagram accounts, Twitter yeah, accounts, yeah. all of that. Yeah. You have a website? Tell me the website. Schoolfoodmatters.org. Yeah. Schoolfoodmatters.org. And um, please, I'm sure Stephanie would love to hear from you. Thanks, Stephanie, very much for Thank chatting you. to me today. Always Cheers, happy to talk about school gardening. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Now it's time for some questions from you. So we're going to open up the post bag. And I'm here with Anton. Hello, Anton. Hello. 
and also Chris. Oh, yeah. We've got some really cracking questions this time. So the first one is all about tomatoes. So for several years, I've been growing lots of different tomatoes in my greenhouse. And each year the fruits split before I harvest them. What am I doing wrong? So I'm going to ask Chris. Well, they're not really doing anything wrong, I don't think. I've had a lot of splitting on my tomatoes this year. All mine are outside. I grow them on the balcony or go them down the allotment. They're not in a protected environment. And I found that they were I had a bumper crop this year, but we had a lot of rain at the end of this drought. And a lot of mine split. So I think it's moisture. It's water related. So I think there is too much moisture. It causes them to split. This means they're not unusable. They just don't keep as fresh as long. Actually, on the balcony where I control my watering a lot more, I didn't have so much of a problem. I think Anton will probably know a little bit more about this. Yeah, I'd go along with that. It tends to be the sort of watering is a little bit uneven. So they might have a very dry period. And then when they get a lot of water, plants can't sort of keep up with their growth, basically. So that, that's why they end up splitting. So that's just what's happened with you, Chris. You had a dry period where you probably couldn't keep on top of the watering, however hard you tried. And, th- and then a lot of rainfall came and they, the black tomatoes just started growing very quickly and split. I didn't have so much of a problem in, in the glass house. I, if I left the, them on the plant for too long, then they would split. But I think that happens to most, most people. But I also invested in a very cheap drip irrigation system this year. Um, it could water 10 pots at a time and just have little drippers onto each pot. And that was absolutely brilliant because it just kept the sort of moisture levels in the soil much more consistent. And it saved a lot of water as well because the water is being actually targeted to the soil and not sort of evaporating off, off the top as well. So actually the surface of the pots appeared still quite dry, but when you just sort of scurried down a bit, it was quite damp underneath. So it was just getting to the roots where the tomatoes needed it. Can I ask you where your water source was? Was that off a water butt? Yeah, I actually rigged it up to a water butt. It had a little sort of electric pump as well, run from rechargeable batteries. I had a little filter as well to filter it out so I didn't clog up the system because that's often a sort of problem with drip systems. Also, we were not so worried about the spores from the bite fungus getting into the water butt because it's being delivered straight to the soil rather than being showered close to the leaves, which it can be a worry using sort of water butt water on tomatoes. So, yeah, it works really well. How long would you recommend putting that drip on for for the day? Because you only need short bursts of water, don't you? Most people overwater, don't they? You don't need long for that drip to be on. I, I worked out how much it was delivering to each pot. So actually did need to leave it on for about sort of half an hour a, a day because it drips out really, really slowly. And that's what gets the soil nice and moist because it's going out in a sort of slow, steady drip as opposed to just chucking a load on with a watering can. So it's not transpiring straight away. It's actually penetrating the soil but half an hour is not a long time so it's quite important to point out that you don't need to put it on for hours i suppose no you don't and the other thing to bear in mind is like you were saying you're worried about overwatering during the autumn you need to sort of reduce that amount quite drastically because as the, the days get really sort of shorter so quickly in september you have noticed even indoors my house plants are just needing less and less water as the days are starting to shrink yeah the radiation the plants are getting is is really sort of so much less right well let's move on uh second question here i follow no dig methods in my garden but i'd like to improve my soil by growing some green manures please can you tell me which green manure you'd recommend for no dig as in are there any that don't need digging in that that's the question so 
Let's ask Chris, first of all, what kind of green manures are you sowing? Well, it's interesting because I'm, I'm pretty unadventurous when it comes to green manures. I kind of use two. I might use a field bean during the summer, and I, but I mainly use mustard. That's quite interesting because I'll sow them sort of early September. They're very quick to germinate. I sow them very thickly. They come up in a big block. Because I'm in London, and this might not be the case for the whole country, I'm pretty sure it isn't, I don't really see them getting checked by frost, even though they're very fleshy young plants, very vulnerable to cold. We don't, they don't really get checked. What I have learned, though, is the following spring is to make sure you cut them down or, you know, fought them in quite early in the game. Because if you let them flower, they tend to, tend to get very pithy. And then they, when you cut them down, they just sit on the soil and they don't break down and the soil doesn't imbibe them. So I'll be interested to hear what uh, Anton says about it, because I think that's worked for me. Yeah, Chris, I would go along with that. It's particularly important not to let things go to the flowering stage. Once they go into that reproductive stage, then the tissues start to get really pithy. And, and then, they, like you say, the material just sits on the surface and takes half a year to break down, which you don't want. So, yeah, I grow no dig in my garden now, and I do use green manures. It's a bit of a myth that you can't use green manures in a no dig system. In October, you're quite limited to what you can sow now because a lot of green manures won't get established. You still can sow for cilia. When you sow it in October, the plants remain quite small and they won't get killed off by a frost. They'll survive into the next season. So you will then need to cut them down and mix them with some compost. Um, field beans is another thing that you could grow as well. They still germinate in October. But again, I'd be very careful. Like Chris says, you don't want to let them flower and start producing pods. It's very tempting to do that, but they'll be so tough. When I cut things down, I tend to mix them with a bit of compost on the top as well, um, just because it really helps them to break down. Otherwise, you just end up with sort of green mat of material Either it dries out or it goes very slimy, depending on, on the weather, and neither's really desirable. So just mixing it in with some compost. Um, sort of March time is a good time to, to do that. Um, but Garden Organic, we have actually been trialling the new overwinter green manure mix. Um, I'm always conscious that green manures have often come out of agricultural catalogues and then been stuck straight into gardening catalogues. So our new mix that we've tried, it's got a mix of quite soft species like vetch, phacelia, forage peas, crimson clover and linseed as well. So we're going to see how that works. We've got about 120 people trying that in different places around around the country. It should be quite interesting to see how that works out. I must admit, I was walking around the Ripon Garden just this morning and clover is looking really super, so probably two inches high. I think green manures are they gladden the heart because they, they look good, they cover the soil, and then you've got that wonderful feeling of, of knowing that they do great things to the soil later on in the year, getting you ready for next year's growing season. So on to our third question, a bit of a community question here. So please, can you advise any options of using an organic weed and feed for my local parish council? At the moment, they spend almost a thousand pounds on weed and feed chemicals on a two and a half acre playing field. And I'd like to be able to make them aware of the alternatives. So that's from one of our members called Helen. Thank you, Helen. Great question. Anton, let me just start with you on this, because obviously we're talking about grass. Yeah, I guess there's been more of a move in a garden situation for people to 
embrace more diversity in their lawns. It used to be a case where people are asking, how do I get rid of clover? But now we're sort of happy to see it because it attracts the bees. But perhaps in a more, let's say, if you've got a playing field or bowling green or something like that, then those sort of species can be quite slippery and not very practical for sports situations. So, yeah, we probably want to look at trying to encourage the grass to grow grow more and be more vigorous. So I'm going to pass on to Chris because that's really his area of expertise. He's had a lot of experience at that. Yeah, I kind of agree with Anton in terms of I, I, I think that I love to see I love to see daisies and yarrows and clover and all that in grass. Uh, like they're pollinators, they look make the grass looks better, otherwise you might as well just concrete and paint it green. A little bit different if you're dealing with sports services. Obviously, that's part of our parks, part of our recreation. And it really kind of comes down to the seed mixes you're using, I think. I think when you if you're especially also the soils you're on, if you're on clay soils and it's getting a lot of wear. What tends to happen is it gets bare and then invasive species will come in. For the big field, I would certainly look at very strong ryegrass mixes. They are what traditionally rugby pitches are made of. And then if you've got a poor soil like a clay, which grass tends not to like, then obviously scarifying, tining will help thicken that sward. That's When I mean tining, I mean uh, spiking it to let the air in, to get the roots down. And scarifying means you're taking all the thatch out and breaking the underground stems, the stole on. And that means, again, the fact the, uh, the sward thick, thickens out. And you certainly don't need to be using weed killers on it. Make sure you overseed and make sure it's draining properly. When it comes to things like cricket pitches and bowling greens, well, they pretty much have to be a grass sward because... Obviously, it's about the roll of the ball and the bounce of the ball. So you use bents and you use fescues. There's your seed mix. People might put uh, creeping red fescues in because they're quite drought resistant. But the reason you use those seeds is because the grass can take being cut really, 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 really short. And then again, very little need for any kind of chemicals. and You won't need to spend that money on on fertilisers and pesticides. So there's weed and feed chemicals. I am quite interested in in the notion that you wouldn't have to feed it because obviously this grass it's it's going to be under an awful lot of pressure, a lot of stress, a lot of a lot of use. Mm. Um, and you would say that you wouldn't have to feed it, but if well, it, it did, would there be a natural feed that you could recommend? Well, yeah, I mean, there are now coming on the market. Um, quite interestingly, uh, a lot of organic feeds starting to appear. They were non-existent twenty years ago, but I think that if you're determined to be organic then make sure overseeding, scarifying, tining are, are, are quite organic methods to do it. Make sure your sword's thick. People tend to nitrogen feed in spring and summer to get boosts of growth. It's almost like a, a, an amphetamine, if you like, for the grass because it thickens it up very quickly. And then what tends to happen is obviously that runs out and the grass becomes weak again. You've got to get much better results if you concentrate on the physicality of the, of the, of the plant and making sure it can produce new crowns that is thickened and overseed it. I think that's the way forward. How interesting. Sounds to me like they need an army of volunteers on the scarifying as well. <laughs> <laughs> get them out there with a spring box. <laughs> hundred of them all walking in a line that's good fun that's good exercise cheaper than the gym that's great thanks ever so much both of you see you next month thanks Fiona bye thanks that's all we've got time for thank you for listening don't forget you can get a heated propagator from the organic gardening catalogue this month for just 11.99 just go to organiccatalogue.com forward slash pod7 if you want to learn anything more about the topics we've discussed or any other organic gardening conundrum, there's plenty of advice on our website at gardenorganic.org.uk. And you can follow us on social media. We're at Garden Organic UK on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. 
We always love to hear from you, so do get in touch with us if you have any topics or questions you'd like us to cover. Our thanks again to our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue, and to Kevin McLeod for providing the music. That's it. Until next month. 